Tonight we're going to focus a little bit on the fact that we do have freedom, the liberty that we have, that uh, we're celebrating today because it is Independence Day and we're celebrating the fact that we still have a large degree of freedom, although it is being attacked and assaulted. And if truth were known, most of us are not old enough to remember when there was a great deal of freedom and liberty in this country, and it has so gradually eroded that it's sad to recognize uh, how much we have actually lost. And things are going on today in the courts, things are going on today in our nation that our grandparents would have never, ever expected and much less approved of. So uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time this evening just celebrating the fact that this is our uh, nation's birthday, and then we'll focus on uh, on Romans, going back into our our passage in, in Romans. The way we'll start, we'll have prayer, and then I'm going to have uh, four people from the congregation come up and read the Declaration of Independence so that we think about uh, the words, think about what they went through, think about the situation. And one thing uh, we should realize is that two months prior to their signing the Declaration, there was no sense at all in the Continental Congress that they were going to separate from England. Just two or three months prior to the signing of the Declaration, they were loyalists. Think about that in terms of even today's situation. They were still loyal to the crown, loyal to the king, but things were coming uh, quickly to a head, we know from history. So uh, they will read the declaration, and then after that, we're going to sing My Country, Tis of Thee, and then following that, I'll make a few comments about Independence Day and Christians in a changing world and changing uh, cultural environment, and then we'll get into a little bit more in our study from Romans. So before we go to the Lord in prayer, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so all of you can make sure that uh, you're in fellowship, that... Uh, you have uh, no unconfessed sins in your life, so give you the opportunity to make sure that you are uh, ready to study the Word, ready to concentrate and resume your forward momentum in your in your spiritual life, where you can enjoy your fellowship with God. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, on this day we celebrate the fact that a unique event occurred some 237 years ago, and that is that the founding fathers of this nation, having met for almost two years, came to a radical conclusion, the need to separate from the mother nation that had established these colonies and this continent, and the need to separate because the Government in England was no longer submissive to its own laws and was guilty of a, a number of violations of British law, English common law, and therefore it was necessary to separate. As a result of that, of course, a war broke out, and through that war uh, there was uh, independence uh, was proclaimed after, uh, after that war had been going on for over a year. Independence was finally proclaimed, a decision reached after much discussion, much calculation, and a realization of the need to establish something distinct in terms of the kind of government that we had here in this nation. And that was the birth of one of the greatest nations of all of history, if not the greatest nation, because it was grounded in freedom and a recognition that the rights that we have are rights that are not given by the crown, not given by uh, the president, not given by Congress, not given by any human government, but that these are rights that are inherent in being a human being created in your image. And, Father, we have enjoyed tremendous blessing and privilege because of that and because in this environment the Word of God has has flourished over the, over the decades and over the last couple of centuries, but sadly in the last generation or two, 
it has fallen on fallow ground. And, Father, we recognize that when a nation turns its back on you and turns its back on truth, that prosperity quickly evaporates, freedom is lost, and it is not long before a nation that is enslaved to its sin nature is enslaved uh, politically and, and uh, civically as well. And so, Father, we pray that there might be a reversal. We pray for pastors in this country who will uh, boldly and courageously proclaim not only the truth of your word, but how that applies to government and how that applies to the uh, responsibilities of each individual citizen. And we know, Father, that ultimately liberty is grounded in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And there he purchased our true freedom, freedom from sin, and this freedom led to, eventually, to the greatest experiment of political freedom in all of human history. Father, we pray for us as a church, as individual Christians, that we might never take for granted the wonderful freedoms that we have, the wonderful privilege that we have to sit under solid teaching of your word and to see how you work in our lives. And we pray that tonight you will help us to focus and concentrate on our study and that we might be spiritually enriched and strengthened as a result of our study of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to ask Bob Beaver to come up. He's going to start reading the declaration, and he will be followed by uh, James Ezernak and then his sister Ellen, and then closing out uh, will be Jackie Reisinger. And so just uh, come on up, Bob, and here's a microphone, and just start from uh, start from here. And then we'll make sure it's turned on. Declaration of Independence. In Congress, July 4th, 1776, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. Got to blow into the microphone first. <laughs> okay. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them to another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they have become accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism. It is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter the former systems of government. The history of the present King of Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the same establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let these facts be submitted to a candid world. 
He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance, unless suspended in the operation till his assent should be obtained. And when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people, unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time after such dissolutions to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise. The state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states for that purpose, obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriation of of lands. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. He has kept among us in times of peace, standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. He has effected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has combined with other laws to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent in their acts of pretended legislation. For quartering large bodies of armed troops among us, for protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses, for abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government, and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments, for suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt out our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries, to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny, already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages, and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens to take taken captive on the high seas, to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections amongst us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our emigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They, too, have been deaf to the voice of justice and of consanguinity. We must, therefore, acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. 
We therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress, assembled appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connections between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. I want to thank each of you for participating and reading. You all did a great job, and I appreciate that very much. Actually, Independence Day is not today. How many of you all knew that? The actual signing and approval of the Declaration of Independence was on July the 2nd, and uh, John Adams uh, made a very famous statement about that, that this day will live on in celebration. And, and he said that in a letter to his wife, Abigail, the next day. It's a little ambiguous as to which day he is describing, whether it's the 2nd, or the third, but it wasn't the fourth. They were still uh, doing minor revisions to the uh, final form of the Declaration, and on the 4th of July, uh, the <clears throat> earliest draft of the Declaration was signed by only two individuals, John Hancock, who was the president of the Continental Congress, and Charles Thompson, who was a secretary of the Congress. Uh, four days later, on July the 8th, several members of Congress took the document, read it aloud from Independence Hall, proclaiming liberty to the city of Philadelphia, after which the Liberty Bell was rung. The inscription on the Liberty Bell came right out of the scripture. It came from Leviticus chapter 25, verse 10, proclaim liberty throughout the land and to all the inhabitants thereof. The colonists in America were deeply immersed in Christian theology, and there were just a few Jews in the land, uh, in the colonies at the time, but they played a significant role uh, during the War for Independence, some of whom raised significant amounts of money for uh, the support of the Continental uh, Army. Although most, uh, if not all, uh, Americans were uh, influenced by some form of Christianity. All were influenced by a Judeo-Christian worldview. Often today, people overstate the case in trying to claim too many of the founding fathers as Christians. I'm not sure how many were actually born again. But that doesn't matter whether they were actually regenerate, whether they had a clear understanding of the gospel. What matters is they thought in terms of a biblical worldview. That's how, that's how the culture uh, trained them. That's how they, they grew. That's how they were educated. There have also been a number of statements made. You've heard some recently, I'm sure, that <clears throat> some uh, very large percentage of the signers of the Declaration of Independence were ministers of the gospel. I think that's stretching the meaning of the term. Many of the schools in America at that time were founded in order to train men for the gospel ministry. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, uh, Dartmouth, Columbia, many others were founded for that very purpose, although by the time of the American uh, War for Independence, they had expanded their curricula quite a bit. Nevertheless, uh, if anyone attended those those universities, they were well-trained in the Scripture. Men such as James Madison studied under John Winthrop, a Presbyterian minister who was, um, or who was uh, very much a part of the uh, signing of the uh, Declaration of Independence. 
and was influential in the thinking, I mean, excuse me, signed a um, uh, constitution, and was very instrumental in the training of James Madison. That doesn't mean that all of these men were orthodox, Bible-believing Christians. Um, they, they were not. Uh, Jefferson notably was not. Uh, Madison had some issues. J, uh, John Adams was uh, a borderline Unitarian. In fact, if you listen to David Barton, often Barton will cite a number of pastors in the uh, 18th century who were uh, influential in the development of, of the co- understanding of the concept of liberty. Unfortunately, about two-thirds of the pastors he mentions were some of the leading thinkers in the in the uh, uh, very early formative stage of the Unitarian Church. Uh, Barton doesn't do a great job of distinguishing between uh, different theologies. He uses the term Christian in a very broad sense. He would do all of us uh, uh, much uh, much uh, better if he would use the term Judeo-Christian in terms of a worldview rather than tr- trying to go so far as to make it sound like all, many of these founders were uh, Orthodox Bible-believing Christians. My point is, having studied this quite a bit, both since seminary and I did my doctoral work at Dallas Seminary in church history, um, and I've read quite a bit on both sides. There's also another movement today trying to minimize the influence of Christianity. But uh, the analogy I use is that the the, the founding fathers were products of a Judeo-Christian culture, and they thought biblically whether they wanted to or not, just like many of us think too much like a postmodern relativist, because that's the culture in which we grew up, and we were infected by those ideas in ways we don't are not always willing uh, to recognize. Just a couple of uh, comments about the Continental Congress. It was first met on September the 5th. 1774, Carpenter's Hall in Philadelphia. It met for uh, quite a while, for at least the next couple of years. It eventually appointed a committee of five to write the declaration. As late as April of 1776, a year after the outbreak of hostilities at Lexington and Concord, as late as April, there was uh, a vast majority of the continental members of the Continental Congress were loyalists. I think that's really important because if if you are at all like I am, and like many conservatives today, we're becoming more and more uh, conflicted, more and more concerned about the direction of our nation. As we watch what has happened in the courts and in the culture over the past 50 years, we see the beliefs that we held near and dear that were considered mainstream uh, mainstream American values and ideals 50 years ago are now being declared over and again as being unconstitutional. Just this last week with the uh, uh, verdict handed down by the Supreme Court related to the Defense of Marriage Act, showing that uh, they, there's a lack of understanding in the courts that marriage is between a man and a woman. Whatever other issues come up, you can't go back and undo something that has been a standard since the creation, speaking as a Christian. As far back as human civilization goes, no matter what your beliefs are, uh, there has marriage has been between one man and one woman. No empire, no civilization, no culture has ever legitimized any form of homosexual marriage. It's never been done. There is a reason for that, and that is because we understand this is the essence of marriage. Now, there may be other issues, cultural issues, business issues, some legal issues related to uh, same-sex partners, different things like that, but you can't call, you can't call it marriage. Uh, these terms are not fluid, they're not flexible, they're not up for grabs. But see, that's what happens when you come out of a postmodern environment. Words don't mean anything anymore. You're free to redefine your meanings however you see fit. And so once you start changing things, then it has a, a, a domino effect in hundreds if not thousands of unintended consequences because words don't mean what they mean anymore. And once you start changing the meaning of words, then, then you can't count on anything. There's no stability. It erodes the very foundation of law. 
And what has happened that we have witnessed in our lifetime is such a degradation of vocabulary and, and, and meaning that we who are Christians who believe in the Constitution and who believe in the um, Declaration of Independence as it, these were intended by the founders see, uh, feel that we are being declared unconstitutional in our beliefs. And so this puts us in a difficult situation. And I think that one of the things that we need to come to understand is that there really is a difference between being a patriot and being a loyal citizen. I think this is something we need to think about because in my thinking, a patriot is somebody who is a gung-ho advocate of their nation. They're willing to go into the military, they're willing to give their life for the freedoms, for the policies, and for the positions of their national government. I'm not willing to to die for this nation anymore because of what they are espousing. And I'm not sure I can encourage others to do that. If I were called upon to go fight in the military, I would. That's the difference between being a a gung-ho patriot and being a loyal citizen. I, I see that as a distinction. Loyal citizen is someone who follows the principles of, of Romans uh, chapter 13, that we're obedient to our government. But that doesn't mean I am a full-bore advocate of this government as it is being redefined and has been redefined over the last 20 years. I feel like I have been declared unconstitutional by, by, the, by the Supreme Court's over the last 30 or 40 years. My opinions and my beliefs are not wanted. Basically, Christians, you know, keep off the grass. That's the mentality. Now, does that mean that we should just fold our hands and close up our tents and go home? No, it doesn't. We have responsibilities as citizens of this nation to be involved. That's what it means to be a citizen, whether you're a Christian, a Buddhist, a Hindu, uh, uh, whether you're, you practice Judaism or whether you are an atheist. If you are born in this country as a citizen, you have a responsibility to be educated on the history of this nation, to be educated on the issues that face uh, Congress, on the issues that face our state legislatures, on the issues that face our, our local governments. And we have to be educated so that we can vote in an informed manner and carry out our our duties as citizens to get in touch with uh, political leaders, to let them know what our views are. This is our responsibility as citizens. It's not activism. It is action. It is responsibility. Uh, when you get engaged in illegitimate action, where you're involved in illegal action, that's when it go- crosses the line. But we have to, I think there's a comparison here with the church, with the founding fathers is that they were still loyal to England while they were at war with England and unwilling to separate. And I'm not advocating war, any kind of rebellion, anything like that. I'm simply making the point that because of the actions of our government, we have been put at odds with a government we have, as Christians, we have strongly supported for since the founding of this country, without Christianity, we would not have had the freedoms that we have. And so this is still our country. But I think we, as Christians, need to wake up that this isn't the country of the 1920s. It's not the nation of the 1940s or the 1950s. It is a whole new world. And we can't have the same attitudes and values and blinding patriotism we once had because it's been redefined right out from under us. But we need to be loyal, and we need to continue to stay, to take a stand for our nation. It's going to there. There's there's a certain uh, certain dichotomy there. Before I get into our lesson tonight, I want us to sing. I want us to sing. Uh, My country tis of thee. Get out your hymnals. And Alan's going to come up, and um, and we're going to open in in song. Five what? 571. And as we sing this, I want you to pay attention to the last stanza, the fourth verse, is written as a prayer. And this should continue to be our prayer uh, to God because liberty and freedom comes only from God 
but it can be taken from us because of our irresponsibility and our lack of positive volition. So let's stand together and sing number 571, My Country Tis of Thee. many enemies to freedom and liberty in our country today. They're enemies of Christianity as well, and if they had their way, they would completely remove all Christians and influence of Christianity from every aspect of our culture. This is the furthest thing that our founding fathers had in mind. In fact, John Adams believed that the 4th of July should become a religious holiday remembering that God had a hand in our deliverance and that there would be a day filled with celebration of our freedom, but also religious activities wherein the citizens of the United States would give thanks to God and worship him because he is the author of liberty, as we just sang. His son, John Quincy Adams, later a president of the United States, was also very much involved in the activities of the American War for Independence. In 1837, when he was 69 years old, he was asked to give a speech about the founding of our nation and the Declaration of Independence at Newburyport, Massachusetts. And he began that address with a question. He said, why is it, friends and fellow citizens, that you're here assembled? Why is it that entering on the 62nd year of our national existence, you've honored me with an invitation to address you? Well, the answer was obvious because he was one of the few that was left who was a witness to the events surrounding the birth of our nation. He went on to say and to ask them, why is it that next to the birthday of the Savior of the world, your most joyous and venerated festival returns on this day. So in the early decades of our nation, the 4th of July, uh, Independence Day, was, was venerated second only to the day uh, where we celebrated the birth of our Savior. This shows that in the founding, in the thinking of the founding fathers, that Christianity was, was very, played a very large role in 
and the uh, recognition of freedom. Our founding fathers realized that freedom was built upon uh, individuals taking responsibility for their lives and their actions. It wasn't the government's responsibility to take care of them or to give them a security blanket from cradle to grave. It was the responsibility of the government to make sure that they were free, uh, that they had their rights were recognized, as we read in the opening of the Declaration, that they were given by their creator, a phrase that our president usually drops when he quotes from the opening of the Declaration of Independence. I've heard him several times, and he ignores the fact that the Declaration says that we were endowed uh, by our Creator with these rights, uh, the right to life, the right to liberty, and the right to happiness. No, it doesn't say that, does it? It says the right to the pursuit of happiness, the government doesn't make you happy. The government's job isn't to make us happy. It is to it is to stay out of our way so that we can pursue happiness. My favorite T-shirt is one I picked up at a gun show several years ago. And on the back of it, it says, Liberals evolved from monkeys. <laughs> Constitutionalists were endowed by their creator. That says it all. We, the, the declaration is, is embedded within a Judeo-Christian worldview. The language uh, that's used there, even though it's not the language that we read in theology books and things of that nature, but it is a language that in their generation uh, resonated with a belief in a creator God uh, and a belief that our rights as human beings emanated from that God, were given by that God, and we, because we were created is in his image and likeness. This is one reason why there's such a debate over creation versus evolution. If evolution wins as a worldview, which it is doing, then it, it eviscerates the meaning of the opening of the Declaration of Independence because there's no creator to endow us with rights. And so all of these things work together as an assault upon uh, upon the nation. Well, according to John Quincy Adams, Christmas and the 4th of July, Christmas and Independence Day were intrinsically uh, connected, and the founders understood that because they took the precepts of Jesus Christ, which came into the world as a result of his incarnation, and then they incorporated those principles, principles from the Old Testament, from the Torah, like the passage I cited earlier that was uh, written on the Liberty Bell from Leviticus 25.10. And they under, our founders understood that liberty was ultimately grounded in a recognition of uh, the individual's responsibility to God. And if that is, was lost, then the nation would become immoral, that a nation could not preserve its liberty on the foundation of immorality. And yet part of what we have seen over the last 50 years with the uh, various court rulings that have taken any kind of, of influence of Christianity out of the schools from the removal of prayer. A lot of different things you can say about that particular court decision. For one thing, the prayer was actually uh, written by the New York uh, school board, and it wasn't really the, mo the most orthodox prayer. But there was a principle behind it. And that principle was that there was at least recognized by the action of mandating that all school children pray a recognition that as creatures under the authority of God, we were dependent upon God for everything. Now we are dependent, uh, independent of God and everything is falling apart. Now, we find ourselves today under assault by the federal government. We are our emails, everything that we do online is being observed by the National Security Agency. The IRS is targeting conservative groups who seek a nonprofit educational status, and they're not targeting liberal groups. It is clearly an invasion of our rights, invasion of our privacy, and an assault upon the First Amendment. We have a government that seems to no longer care about the Bill of Rights. Assaults on almost every amendment are going on today. So we need to really think about our role as believers in a culture that has 
written God out of their um, uh, of their thinking, and that's what they want to do. But we have to stand firm. We have to function in grace. We have to be even more devoted in prayer than we have ever been for this nation. And we need to also be as involved as we possibly can in every level of government to the degree that we can so that our our voice is heard. This is how we function as salt and light in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. Now, the reason we do this is because we worship a living God. Again and again in our study of Acts on Tuesday night, we've seen this emphasis on worshiping a living God. We worship a Savior who is not only a human being, but is also eternal God. In our study of Romans on Thursday nights, in Romans 9, uh, 3 through 5, we've been emphasizing God's plan and purpose within uh, the Israelites, uh, the, uh, the Jewish nation, uh, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to whom we're told uh, in Romans 9, 4, belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. Of whom, that is, of the Jews, are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, that is, the incarnation, the Messiah came. I'm going to translate this in an Old Testament Hebrew sense so you catch the thrust of what Paul is saying here. According to the flesh, in terms of his humanity, the Messiah came, who is what? Overall, the eternally blessed God. And so this tells us, uh, in sort of a retranslation here, uh, more accurate in terms of the, uh, in terms of the Greek word order, of whom are the fathers and from whom the Messiah, according to the flesh, who is overall, the eternally blessed God. Now, last time I started this, pointing out that in the Old Testament, you have two streams of uh, prophecy, one indicating that the Messiah would be God, the other pointing out that the Messiah would be human. Now, if you're talking with someone who's Jewish, they don't believe that the Messiah was supposed to be God. It's very easy to demonstrate this from the Old Testament. And as I pointed out, we should all have three or four Old Testament verses, three or four New Testament verses that we can go to to demonstrate that Jesus Christ claimed to be God, that it was understood from Old Testament prophecy that the Messiah would be both human and uh, divine. And so we started last time looking at one of my favorite passages, Isaiah 7.14. I want you to turn with me there, and we'll finish up. I had to stop just as we got to that passage last time and point out some of the key things uh, that are going on here in the text. This is a time of tremendous uh, turmoil in the southern kingdom of Judah. King Ahaz who is not one of the better kings of the southern kingdom, but he's neither is he one of the worst. Uh, he is under assault by an alliance of the northern kingdom, who is ruled by Pekah, the son of Remaliah. These individuals are introduced in the first verse of the chapter. And Ahaz uh, is under assault from them, this alliance between Pekah, the king of um, of uh, 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 the northern kingdom of Israel and resident king of Syria because he is of the house of David. The physical warfare, the, the on-the-ground warfare, was a result of the angelic conflict. See, what goes on on the ground, whether we see it, understand it, and today we don't have a divine interpreter, we don't have a prophet to tell us what's going on in, um, in, in terms of the Middle East, uh, what what changes? I mean, five days ago, we never would have anticipated that Morsi would be taken out of uh, his position as president of Egypt uh, by the military in Egypt and uh, that the Muslim Brotherhood would be under assault. Uh, there's the uh, Egyptian military is sending out teams to arrest members, uh, especially the more radical members of the, uh, of, of the Muslim Brotherhood. It's, it's in tremendous turmoil. Uh, the whole Middle East is under tremendous turmoil. When I go on these various trips that I've gone on the last couple of years sponsored by different groups uh, going over to Israel, we are given 
one lecture after another by different Middle East experts. And even from day to day on these trips, the situation on the ground changes. It's extremely fluid in Syria. Uh, nobody knows what's going on. And our government, to its eternal shame, is, is making available weapons to the, uh, the rebels in Syria who are allied with al-Qaeda. Now, this remember, we're the country that was attacked by al-Qaeda on 9-11, you know, just 12 years ago, and now we're, we're giving weapons to an al-Qaeda alliance in Syria to overthrow us. We don't have any business getting involved at all. It, it's, it's their problem. It's a Syrian problem. It's not our problem. There are no U.S. interests there. We have a president who backed Morsi, and now he is radically embarrassed and should be uh, because of the opposition uh, from the, the Egyptian people. I've seen uh, various uh, articles and pictures uh, related to actions in, in, uh, in Egypt where many Egyptians blame Obama and the United States. But we have to take that with a grain of salt because when everything happens, they're going to blame the United States no matter what. They're going to blame Bush. They're going to blame Obama. doesn't matter who's in the White House. They're going to blame the United States. And part of that is because we get involved in places where we shouldn't. We're trying to manipulate events and control events when we should stay out of them. We have no real vested interest there, and we're too busy trying to pick the winner. And we picked a winner. We picked Morsi. What a loser. Now he's gone, and we're embarrassed. This is what happens when governments get involved, are, are, are operating on the basis of arrogance. Well, at the time of, um, of Ahaz, He's got a problem because he is uh, outnumbered and overwhelmed by this northern alliance between the northern kingdom of Israel and the Syrians. And so they're going to attack. But the real issue, as I pointed out last time, is that they are making an assault on the house of David. Now, remember, the background here is that God has made a covenant with David that there will be a king who will sit forever on the throne of David. The house of David will not be taken away from Judah. And so this is a direct assault. We see this in verse 6. I pointed it out last time where the as, as uh, uh, Isaiah uh, reveals the conversation between the king of Israel and the king of Syria, what they're saying is let us go up against Judah and trouble it. And let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tabel. They want to replace the house of David with someone they can control, someone not loyal to God. But God says in verse 7, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. This is a promise to Ahaz. He is under threat. He may lose his country, lose his throne. Uh, he's a, he would be something like... Uh, 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 Morsi, but he's not going to be. God says, no, you're not going to lose your throne. You're not going to uh, lose the country. Uh, in fact, this is the beginning of the end for both Damascus and the northern kingdom. Within 65 years, the northern kingdom will be uh, destroyed by another country. So that prophecy is in verse 8. And so then we come down to the core prophecy starting in verse 10. The Lord, in addition, spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself. From the Lord God, from the Lord your God, as ask it either in the depth or in the height above. Now, Ahaz is operating on arrogance. This is a case of a person who's probably a believer, but one who is ignorant of doctrine and rebellion against God, and he's filled with arrogance and pride. And so when God gives him a direct order to do something, he says, no, Lord, I'm not going to do that. I'm too humble. I will, he says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Well, God just said to do it. So now he's going to get a little bit of a reprimand, verse 13. And Isaiah says to him, Hear now, O house of David. Now this is very important to recognize what's going on here, as I pointed out last time. It's significant because in the English you don't get this. This is one of those few times when it's really necessary uh, in, in an in a extremely important way to know Hebrew grammar. 
I, I, I try not to make a point out of the fact that you can't understand Scripture unless you know the original languages. The original languages usually are necessary in order to expand and refine and tighten our understanding. But in passages like this, you don't even get it in the English when it could have been handled by translators. We do have a plural uh, second-person pronoun. It is a very good word. Y'all use it every day. But they don't use it in the translation of the Scripture. That's the word y'all, of course. And it would make it very clear because in verse 13, Isaiah begins to address the house of David. Not Ahaz personally, but the house of David. And he says, is it a small thing for y'all, plural, to weary men, but will y'all weary my God also? He's addressing the house of David as a plural entity. Now, we got about that far last time, and then I didn't have time to complete it in going into the prophecy itself. Now, the prophecy says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Now, I want you to notice something here. The Lord's going to give them what? A sign. Two things there. This is coming from the Lord. It's not just something that's going to happen culturally. It's not going to happen down the street. It's not something that's going to happen to your neighbors or to somebody you know in, in college. This is a God-given sign. Second, it's a sign. That means it's miraculous. That's the idea behind a sign. It's not just a coincidence that this occurs. It's not something that's going to be of, of a natural, normal course of events. It's miraculous. Now, the reason I say that is we have to remember God causes it to happen on the one hand, and it's a miracle on the other hand, because there's a debate in, over the meaning of the key word here, which is the word virgin. But before we get there, let's keep on uh, the track that we're working, which is the pronouns. Therefore, the Lord himself will give y'all a sign, plural. Not you, Ahaz, but will give y'all, the house of David, a sign. Now, the reason this is important is because we're going to switch back to the singular later on, and there's something that's going to be there as a, as a, 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 as, as a sort of a guarantee of this prophecy for Ahaz in terms of what's going to happen in his generation. But the sign is not going to happen at all in his generation. It's going to happen uh, several hundred years later when it's fulfilled in the uh, birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's not a dual fulfillment. What you'll hear, and this used to really confuse me when I was in seminary, uh, because I, I, I just wasn't clued in on this issue when I first went to seminary. But there are some people who talk about dual fulfillment, that a prophecy like this is fulfilled twice. It has a near fulfillment in the, um, uh, in, in the birth of a child to Isaiah's wife that is assigned in, to, to Ahaz. And then there's a far fulfillment. And the far fulfillment would be the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the immediate prophecy is what matters. This is where you get some people who will say there's no messianic prophecy because they would interpret this to be a near fulfillment. It's just an application sort of to Jesus. But that's because they haven't exegeted it clearly. Therefore, the Lord himself will give y'all the house of David a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. Now, this is why I emphasize that it's a miracle. It's the virgin will conceive. Now, there's a couple of things we have to note here. First of all, the, it's not a virgin. It, it's not talking about a generic virgin. It's not talking about an indefinite noun here, an indefinite virgin. It is the virgin. And there is an assumption already within Jewish thought that they were tracking a certain promise, a promise going back to Genesis uh, chapter 315, that the seed of the woman would uh, crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And so there is an understanding already that they're looking for a, a particular woman. And now this is indicated by the use of the definite article here in the Hebrew, behold, the virgin uh, will conceive. Now the Hebrew word here, uh, that we have is the first word on this list. That's the Hebrew word Alma. 
Alma. Now, there's a certain amount of debate over the meaning of this particular word. I pointed this out last time that in the uh, Revised Standard Version that came out in the early 50s, they translated it the young woman. Now, that's a problem because uh, the traditional and correct understanding is to translate this as a virgin. The ancient Jewish rabbis who translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek some 200 years before the birth of Christ, before Christ, okay, 200 years, translated this with the Greek word parthenos, which means the virgin. So they understood that that's what Alma meant. Now, Alma is a word that refers to primarily a young, unmarried woman. But in their culture, a young, unmarried woman was assumed to be a virgin. It was not the kind of promiscuous culture we have today. So a young, unmarried woman, uh, just barely marriageable age, was understood to be a virgin. Now, another word that is used that sometimes means virgin is the Hebrew word betula. Betula can refer to a virgin of any age, whether she's a, an older woman or a uh, young woman barely of, of uh, marriageable age. In Joel 1.8, Betula refers to a young widow, obviously not a virgin, but she's a young widow. So the word has a broader meaning than Alma does. A third word that is used in Hebrew of a young woman is Na'arb. Uh, it refers to a young woman who is a virgin in 1 Kings 1-2 and a young woman who is not a virgin in Ruth 2-6. So the word Alma is the word that is used here, and it is used in six other passages in the Old Testament. In Genesis 24-43, in Exodus 2-8, verse 8, Psalm 68-25, in the Song of Solomon twice, in Song of Solomon 1, 3, and 6, 8, and in Proverbs 30, 18 to 19. Let me give those to you again. Uh, Genesis 24, 43, Exodus 2, 8, Psalm 68, 25, Song of Solomon 1, 3, Song of Solomon 6, 8, and Proverbs 30, uh, verses 18 to 19. In these passages, it is... Uh, it's not used of a married woman. It is always used of an unmarried of an unmarried woman, and it was understood to refer to a uh, a virgin. Now, when it comes to the word Alma, if you think about it logically, if it could refer to an unmarried woman who wasn't a virgin, then number one, it's nothing miraculous. It's not a sign for an unmarried woman to become pregnant. Remember, the whole idea here is that this is something that's a sign. It's a miracle. It's not a miracle for an unmarried woman who's not a virgin to become pregnant. That happens every day. But it is a sign if the young unmarried woman, normally that word being understood to refer to a virgin, does become pregnant and she has not had any sexual intercourse. That's what makes it a sign. And we're talking about something miraculous that is going to come to pass, that is going to confirm to the house of David that God has not forsaken his promise that there will be a descendant of the house of David forever upon the throne of of. Um, of Judah. So what we see here in summary is that this prophecy relates to a sign to the house of David, not just to Ahaz personally. If we look at verse 15 and 16, we read, Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. This is simply talking about his the physical growth and maturation of the humanity of this child. Uh, verse 16, For behold, the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land uh, that you dread. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread, it shifts to a singular. He's now talking to Ahaz personally. So he shifts to talking about another child. Now he's gone. He, remember, Isaiah was told to bring his son with him. Uh, and so his son is present with him. And so it's very likely that in verse 16 there is a shift that occurs where the reference to the child here is now to the child. I know some of your translations have that uppercase, but the child there should be lowercase. It's probably referring to uh, Isaiah's son that he has with him. 
before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread, Ahaz, singular, will be forsaken by both her kings. The king will bring the, the Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you, singular, and your people and your father's house, days that have not come since the day that Ephraim uh, departed from Judah. So that's a prophecy uh, related to the future. So you have two prophecies here. One, to guarantee the security of the house of, of, of David. That's indicated by the plural pronouns in verses 13 and 14. And then you have another prophecy related to the immediate time period that relates to Ahaz and giving him a sign. And that's indicated by the singular pronouns in uh, verse 16, verses 16 and 17. So the context indicating that this is a sign requires it to be a miracle. So it can't refer to an illegitimate child, but it must refer to the child of a miraculous virgin conception and virgin birth. And then we are going to, we understand from the last part of verse uh, 14, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, Emmanuel is a Hebrew name. The last syllable, L, means what? God. Im, I am, is the Hebrew preposition with, and A-N-U, that N-U, is the uh, suffix or prefix to indicate a um, uh, first-person plural ending, so it's with us, God with us. And so what this verse tells us is, first of all, this is going to be a human being because he's born of a virgin, a human mother, but he is going to be God because his name is going to be God with us. And so we see a very strong passage here indicating the deity of, of the Messiah. Later on, when as Christianity had developed through the Middle Ages, by approximately 1000 A.D., you had the rise of a very well-known rabbi who went by the name of Rashi. That was his nickname. Up until that time, the interpretation that I've given you was pretty much understood to be a messi- that messianic interpretation was the rabbinical interpretation. Rashi is the one who redefined it to refer only to Isaiah's son and to have an immediate historical uh, fulfillment and to take away from it any sense of a messianic of a future messianic uh, fulfillment. Uh, sadly, one of the things that happened in the history of Christianity is that early reformers under, uh, with, under John Calvin, Luther, and others went to Jewish rabbis to learn Hebrew, and a number of them picked up some of these non-Messianic interpretations, and they entered into the flow of thought within uh, Protestant theology. Throughout much of uh, Protestant theology, uh, these passages are understood to be clearly messianic with a singular fulfillment in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. But in recent decades, uh, this has be, this course has been reversed and we find that a number of, uh, of evangelical scholars today don't really hold to messianic interpretation. But you've been taught better and you understand. And this is a great passage for you to have under your belt so that if you're ever engaged in a conversation where somebody makes a statement, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, you can always say, well, wait a minute, the Old Testament expectation was that he would be God. We can look at Isaiah 7.14, he was going to be called Emmanuel, and the next time we'll look at the next couple of verses. So let's go to the Lord now and close in prayer, and after we finish praying, Alan's going to come up, and we're going to close out our Independence Day celebration by singing God Bless America. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we're thankful for this time that we can reflect upon your word, reflect upon the fact that you have a plan, that that plan, uh, as far as we're concerned in time, began uh, after the fall with the promise, the prophecy given to uh, the serpent uh, related to the seed of the woman, and that this prophecy was developed down through the ages in many different ways, focusing upon uh, the ultimate fulfillment in the person of the one called the Messiah, the God-man, whom we understand to be Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Father, of him, Paul said that uh, we have been set free. He is the one who gave us true liberty. And that spiritual liberty is really the foundation for all other liberty as we celebrate our, our freedom, our liberties today that we have in this nation. We know that they are uh, under assault, that they are gradually eroding, in some cases quickly eroding, but we know that that our future is in your hands and that we are 
ambassadors of your throne to this world and that our focus needs to be upon that and upon the fact that we have a message to all those around us that they desperately need to hear, a message of hope, a message of, uh, of eternal life, that sin has been dealt with, that there's forgiveness, that there is a path to realization of a, of a relationship with you and your love, and that is through the cross, believing on Jesus alone for our salvation because he is the promise and promised and prophesied Messiah. Now, Father, as we go on, go to other places perhaps to celebrate our nation's liberty, we pray that we as Christians might have a unique appreciation uh, for what we have in this nation and that we may never take it for granted, but that every day we pray for it, we pray for our leaders as Scripture uh, exhorts us to do, and we are involved to the best of our ability at every level of our civic responsibility. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. What number? There is no. It's not in the book. It's not in the book. Okay. Everybody knows.